So I grew up, you know, I was born in, you know, the, the early 60s, and I saw a different society than can even be possibly imagined by what we what what has come into existence today. Mm -hmm. I was seeing um, the fulfillment of the New Deal reforms that created essentially the most powerful middle class in the history of the world. With the greatest equality in 1970 was the high mark. We had a time where the unions were strong enough for, uh, you know, uh, a, a single household mm -hmm. uh, to afford a house, to have mm -hmm. two cars and to send your kids to college. That was the American dream back then. Mm -hmm. Now what we have today is the American dream is to not be in debt. Now that is a pretty big backsliding from what had once existed. <laughs> I'm your host, artist and author, and playwright W.C. Turk. On this episode of Playtime's Playcast, I speak with artist Diane Thodos about the arts in the age of neoliberalism. It is arguable whether the art market has ever been as broken and corrupt as, as it has become in the age of neoliberalism. I say that with full knowledge of the Nazis' policy of looting art and Jews from occupied countries. That charge applies to auction houses, antiquities, and to the very artists and predatory capitalist pretenders which collectively exceed the greed and corruption of the Nazis. Witness Melania Trump's cynical greed-driven effort at NFTs or Hunter Biden's arguable value versus talent. The pandemic has proved a cash bonanza for the already obscenely wealthy. In her scathing rebuke of neoliberalism, especially with regards to art and culture, titled, titled The Money Power and Art, first published in the New Art Examiner, October, November, December issue 2020, Diane Thodos writes the following. The ideological basis for neoliberalism went much further than previous kinds of capitalism by commodifying aspects of contemporary life, not only in the economy, but in all social, political, cultural, and psychological spheres as well. The most important feature of neoliberal ideology was the abolition of the idea that society and human relationships exist. Thatcher said it best, there is no such thing as society. If you are looking for evidence outside the art world, it lies in MBA programs and big data, which reduces everything to quantifiable data, which in turn is translated into its economic equivalent. Diane Thodos was a Paula Krasner grant recipient in 2002. She has solo exhibits at Koros Gallery in New York, Paul Friedland and Alex Revolt Gallery in Paris, the Traeger Pinto Gallery in Mexico City, and many others Diane is represented by the Thomas Masters Gallery in Chicago. She has also studied with the New York art critic Donald Cuspit from 1987 to 1992 and focused much critical writing on Chicago art history and expressionism with articles appearing in New Art Examiner, Sculpture Magazine, Art on Paper, Dialogue Magazine, 
and the Chicago Artist Coalition News, among others. Her work has been collected by the Milwaukee Art Museum, the National Hellenic Museum in Chicago, the Smart Museum of Art at the University of Chicago, the Block Museum at Northwestern University, the Illinois Holocaust Museum in Skokie, Illinois, and the Coneline Museum in Des Plaines, Illinois, also at the Strake Jesuit Museum in Houston, Texas, among many others. Her website is dianephotos.com. Diane, I'm out of breath. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that glowing introduction, Bill. Uh, um, well, I, I thought it was thought it was very necessary to, to sort of anchor you solidly, anchor your reputation and your place solidly among the art world and an art critique world with uh with all of that what what did you think about my introduction and the charge that the the international art market is perhaps more corrupt than it, at, at any other time in history well you know it's an interesting situation that you know i'm from a generation that still remembers the time of the new deal that still remembers the time when we had a government that supported uh, working people and uplifted the middle class, that produced a highway system that increased the economy by 30, like 30 percent uh, increase of economic activity by producing a highway system at no cost to the public, just purely on taxes with no profit motive involved at all. I lived in a time when you had tenured professorships that like my father had in the teaching profession where you could have a single salary raise an entire family uh and have health care housing and pension and and the education of those children covered right you know i lived through a time when there was a profound change and, and i was being uplifted by that time at the same time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i grew up born in the, the early 60s and i saw a different society than can even be possibly imagined by what we what what has come into existence today mm -hmm. i was seeing the fulfillment of the new deal reforms that created essentially the most powerful middle class in the history of the world with the greatest equality in 1970 was the high mark we had a time where the unions were strong enough for you know uh, a single household to afford a house to have mm -hmm. two cars and to send your kids to college that was the american dream back then mm -hmm. now what we have today is the american dream is to not be in debt now yeah. that is a pretty big backsliding from what had once existed mm -hmm. and it takes profound scrutiny of of the economic basis upon which this shift is has been uh, and and by the and by the by the way that that parameter not being in debt is a virtually impossible uh attainment for 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 the middle class and and uh, especially the poor working class and poor people in this country by, by today's standards by, yes by yeah, today's yeah. standards you know, they, they're saying that uh, two people on a minimum wage can't afford a two bedroom uh, apartment anywhere in this yep. country. Yeah. And that would have been a, a huge shocker, even in 1990. Mm -hmm. 
there's programs that are looking at like the Simpsons, uh, you know, the Simpsons basis for, you know, their kind of income and family mm -hmm. is a dream that is like uh, as far away as Mars for the average millennial today. And I've seen this creep through the system in terms of how it's expressed itself in the art world as well. Mm -hmm. that the art world is a mirror of this same problem that we're facing today. And essentially it had to do with the switch. And I just want to pitch a little something here. There's yeah, a yeah. great website called Democracy at Work, and they have some very excellent podcasts by the economists uh, Richard Wolf and also David Harvey. And Harriet Fraud is also a very important uh, voice. Uh, these three podcasts, they, they deal with uh, the importance of workers' cooperatives as a, a panacea to the problem we have right now, which is, uh, you know, uh, monopoly capitalism. I, I've been forced to look at the economic basis that has been kind of uh, shoved into the political and economic sphere of the present that's not being translated into what our media is expressing. Uh, what's the real undercurrent of what's going on? What's the real story? What's the real scoop? And, you know, I've seen the same thing happen in the art world. Uh, you know, when I went to school, we were reading John Dewey's Art as Experience, mm -hmm. which focuses on the critical element of subjective discovery and language and engagement. In other words, that you develop yourself, you develop a, a capacity within yourself, that, the, that it's, it's not a fetishizing or narcissism of the self in, in the sense of, uh, you know, how that's become like life's art lifestyle and that sort of thing. No, it, it was deep inquiry into a capacity for self-development to learn how to teach yourself, to learn how to learn, and to have critical capacity at the same time. I, I'm growing up with reading this book, and then suddenly you get uh, this onslaught of writing that comes from a postmodernist perspective, which is the opposite. We're, we're going into an oppositional uh, position here. I went to a school where you really learn how to draw the figure, really learned your craft, yeah, you learned yeah. how to paint, you learned your materials, you learned your skill, you were tested on those, and you were given the full range. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did everything from glass blowing to printmaking to sculpture welding to drawing, and you made your choice after that. Mm -hmm. But you had the full experience, and you had, you know, the grasp of the language. So you the, could, the you art student, the art student, in in essence, was was the artisan of old, where where the artisans were learning the craft before they could they could rightly call themselves or be named uh, an artist or a master. That's true, and and also. Um, there were standards of what we considered art to be valuable. Uh, learning yeah, how to yeah. draw the figure was very important. Yeah. But today we have a day. Um, what, what's happened is the art world has become neoliberalized, mm -hmm. economically neoliberalized mm -hmm. in the sense that the market forces impose what is important in terms of being an artist, mm -hmm. not the basis of individual or subjective or critical and skilled capacities. The, the, the focus has completely been moved off of that. And it's been moved into uh, the realms of mostly conceptual art and Duchamp and Warhol are the top models. And they've been the yeah, top models yeah. ever since the imposition of this neoliberal economic model. Forgetting that those artists learned classical, uh, were, were trained classically as artists. 
Well, yeah, I mean, actually, Warhol went to the school I went to, Carnegie Mellon University, right, um, right. and he went on to become an illustrator, designer of shoe, uh, mm-hmm, shoe mm-hmm. Um, ads and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he did have some draftsmanship capacity, but he was also the one who turned towards the entertainment business complex of the art world yeah. as the successful model. So he was uh, the bridge actually between you know, commercialized advertisement model mm-hmm. into the fine art world. Mm-hmm. You know, also the conceptual element of Duchamp. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ready-made makes for much faster production of objects for the art world, uh, especially if they're built by, you know, some factory that Damien Hirst or Jeff Koons has, you know, backed up. It's much easier to produce, mass-produce these objects than it is to, you know, be like Giacometti, making one sculpture at a time, one drawing at a time, one painting right. at a time. Right. So the the... To, to fill the market demand, demanded the um, essentially, you know, getting rid of mm-hmm. art as, as experiences uh, or, you know, you can go back to Kandinsky on the spiritual and abstract art. Mm-hmm. Th- there is none of that. Uh, there is no spiritualization of the pure economic model of commodification, yeah. you know, and, and um, Margaret Thatcher and Reagan were the first ones uh, to really... Uh, kind of lay the groundwork for that, that became the commodification of art that has never stopped since the mid 80s. Essentially, it's never stopped. I, I want to go back to something you were talking about just a moment ago. Uh, and, and that has to do with with the ma- mass market mentality of of art making. We always talk on, on this program and in previous programs about the necessity for for building a business acumen for for art students because that that all too often is left out of of arts training actual business training um, on, on how to on how to to market and and promote your art it's the it's the mass marketing of idiotic ideas I guess I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for a word here sophomoric ideas uh, or or un uh, untested ideas uh, and themes in art that seems to be the direction that artists are taking now. In, in other words, it's all about it's all about the flash and bang instead of the substance. Well, you know, you're hitting on the real hinge point of change in the art world that I perceived. Uh, and, and this is not, you know, look, I, I'm I'm okay with certain conceptual artists who really invested yeah. profoundly in what they do. Yeah. You look at Bill Viola's video work and you mm-hmm. feel mm-hmm. the existential point and the emotional point of that work. It succeeds. Indeed. You look at William Kentridge, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, th- these are the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. I think the, the medium has overtaken the message and it's yes. become too easy because you have the technological means of reproduction, you have the tech mm-hmm. technique takes over from what's what's the subjective point of yeah. this particular object existing. It's become a system that actually, the problem I think that's being faced with artists today is if, if you do have that subjective basis in your work, mm-hmm. which is the authentic self, which is somehow cultivated, mm-hmm. somehow nurtured, that you care about, that you really love to draw the figure and you really want to learn to draw it well. Well, you're going to be uh, at a big disadvantage within the mass market system because it it cannot 
you need to sustain by massive amounts of production mm -hmm. in order to be in that category in that league. And I think one of the biggest, you know, basis for understanding that is like, a, you look at Jean-Michel Basquiat, when he started getting popular, he had to start to produce like crazy. Yeah. I mean, to fill the market demand. You know, if you're going to and, you know, Warhol obviously created the model through which that could happen, the factory model. Mm -hmm. So to be successful on that level. And, you know, I think uh, it stressed uh, Basquiat to the point where he, you know, had a heroin addiction that eventually killed him. <laughs> but but the point is, there's, you know, when you're in the economic production mode, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. your subjectivity is a huge liability. And if you want to have both, you end up imploding, I think. Uh, you know, you look at someone like Lucian Freud, and there's not a lot of work there, but whatever you see has that critical, profound subjectivity, that concentration of time and ability over a long period of time developed. You know, the, the difference is he was lucky to have a, a praxis of dealers of um, patrons and of mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. artists that could sustain that subjective vision and allow it to evolve in the kind of uh, so society and audience he had. Now it's, I think that uh, it, it's almost like the, the people who want to be subjectively evolved and develop in the art world are, do it in spite of what the art world is today. You know, and I, I think, let me put this in a simple way, because mm -hmm. I've been studying a lot about Marxian economics mm -hmm. and applying it to my puzzlement about how the art world has become so commodified, so marketized, mm -hmm. so financialized. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're talking about financialization, we're talking about uh, Ken Griffin buying a, a de Kooning for $300 million. Right, right. So we're, yeah. we're talking about a price that is completely irrational in terms of yeah. what the artwork is. In fact, it deflates it, it punctures it, 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 it somehow makes, uh, it puts such pressure on the art that it implodes under that kind of a price. That's because it's becoming a, an instrument of financialization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with the move to that, you're getting like vast wealth and fortune in the world. We have more billionaires in the world than ever had existed before. You know, mm -hmm. we didn't even mm -hmm. really have billionaires before the 1960s. You know, yeah. we had yeah. very few. Now we have so many that there's such a massive amount of money chasing very little art that has been proven as, you know, valuable over time. There was so little of it. So what do they do? They create a post-art market. They create, a, they create a vehicle to meet the demand. And how do they do that? They go into a mass marketing culture. They go into uh, all the forms of commercialization and commodification that exists in the stock market, that exists in, you know, late capitalist society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's been completely derailed from what it was previous historically previous in a time before the financialization of our economies, let's put it that way, before you had billionaires appearing on this. So let me, let me ask you this, because art has always been a feedback, a part of the feedback loop to society. In other words, art is a cultural driver. It's been an, it's, it's recently been shown to be an evolutionary cultural driver uh, far beyond uh, uh, a sort of Darwinistic 
um, biological uh, evolution driver. So it, it's it, it's it's actually driving our evolution as a species, culture, and and, and arts. It also is victim of of the larger society that that it's part of the feedback loop. I guess my best example of, of that is we used to look to artists and writers and poets and, and people who, who actually spent time thinking, philosophers even, that spent time thinking about subjects and issues. And that began to change in the 1970s and and especially in the in the 80s and now now we're at a point where the experts are all lawyers we don't look to authors and artists and poets and and philosophers for our collective or or social wisdom if if that makes if that makes sense so but and, and i'm wondering if if the, that neoliberalism, that neoliberal ideology isn't now such a substantial part of, of the feedback loop that it's poisoned the arts in such a way that, that we have that emphasis on, on a greed culture. Well, I think, you know, this is a profound issue you're bringing up. And I think it's in the same way that the poisoning of our economy mm-hmm. has happened the poisoning of uh, the social contract, the destruction of the social contract has happened. The change from a, a society that had industrial capitalism where you made things that were for use into a society of mm-hmm. fictitious capitalism, mm-hmm. which is what all these bubbles are about. Yeah. The fiction of there being actual exponential value in homes that can increase, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. Well, then you get mm-hmm, the bust mm-hmm. in 2008. The fiction that NFTs are actually have, uh, you know, or, or Bitcoin actually has real value. There's nothing backing it. The fiction that uh, stocks are actually worth what they are when companies get tons of money from the Federal Reserve. And mm-hmm, what do they do? Mm-hmm. They buy back their stock. There's yeah. no real value behind that. They didn't create any real jobs or new factories or right. new products or research with that money. All they did was bid up the value of the stock. So what we're dealing with is fictitious culture, fictitious capital, and a fictitious kind of artist that mm-hmm, fits mm-hmm. into that modality. In fact, it's what Donald Cuspid had talked about in a great book he wrote, and it's one that I always referred to, called uh, The End of Art. Uh, published in 2004. And that book has been republished over and over again uh, as an explanation of what this break happened, where the neoliberal economic system uh, has pretty much hijacked the cultural system Mm -hmm. with its ideological position that the value of what art is, is its money value, is its Mm -hmm. asset value, is that 200, 300 million dollars that uh, Ken Griffin is paying for a Pollock or a de Kooning. Whereas the meaning and value of that, those works uh, were completely different at the time when, uh, for example, way back, I think it was in the late 40s, Catherine Koo, who was a modernist art dealer in Chicago, uh, was demanding that the Art Institute accept a de Kooning's painting excavation for the prize. And she had to fight and fight and fight to get them to accept it. Of course, it's one of the most seminal de Kooning's you could imagine today. But 
at that time, it had zero commodity and asset value. It was purely on the basis of its subjective and modernist import uh, that came from an artist praxis, a dealer praxis, a patron praxis that was just beginning to form. So the social history of why we had art that was of, of, of importance and significance in the past cannot possibly be generated in the present based on the, the way the system is operating. An artist actually has to find an alternative means that separates them from this mass culture of marketing of a certain kind of lifestyle, of a certain mm -hmm. kind of commodifying power that resides within a billionaire class, an ultra-wealthy class, uh, a set of dealers and curators who are part of that whole uh, system. Mm -hmm. There was a big bifurcation uh, that happened, uh, I think it was in the 90s, where uh, the middle, the middle galleries that worked from transitioning artists from, uh, you know, uh, beginning startup mm -hmm. kind of galleries to the middle ones, to the blue chip ones eventually, <laughs> that was broken. And yeah, it's the yeah. same in the economic system. That's when the middle got broken and there was not a transition where you had working mm -hmm. and middle class people losing more and more and more, upper middle and upper class gaining more and more. And it's the same thing that happened in the art world, the, uh, the splitting off of what was a career basis for some kind of evolution within an art praxis that could happen. And, you know, along with that came the descaling of art. Mm -hmm. The desubjectivizing of the expressive point of art, it, it essentially decoupled art from history as well. You know, the dehistoricizing of art. Where This is where you start to get connoisseurs being critiqued yeah, and yeah. bullied by very wealthy people who bought an art by such and such an artist. But that art mm -hmm. is not in the catalog resume of what the, con the connoisseur is saying. Oh, well, that's a Pollock, that's a de Kooning. No, that could well be a fake. Well, those powerful lawyers uh, that those uh, collectors uh, were able to give a lot of money to mm -hmm. were suing the connoisseurs for um, denying their narrative. They paid wow. too much money for this X kind of art for it to be a fake. Yeah. So that's where you start getting the, this major disruption in the art history and the integrity of connoisseurship. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially being usurped by the money power. So do we, do we end up with this polarized artistic society in which, in which uh, a, a few old masters are garnering tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for, for their pieces. And, and, and at the, at the other end, the, the new artist is, is finding themselves hiding in the shadows, acting uh, on its heritage of cultural reflection and critique uh, and, and ultimately fearing the state. I'll, I'll um, let, let me, uh, let me bring this, this up because there's truly an international component that is, is state oriented in this as well. This from art forum, Slovenia's right-wing government slashes art funding. Uh, Slovenia's ministry of culture has cut NGO funding in half, denying public funding to arts organizations that have relied on it 
In the past, the nonprofit Mosca Institute said that the bulk of the organizations denied support, produced or sponsored socially engaged work that is at odds with the views of the ruling Slovenian Democratic Party. Cutting funding has become a means of punishment and suppression of, of speech and creativity, a representative for Mosca said. The move, which shrinks funding from 6.4 million euros, that's about $7 million, to, to 3.6 million euros, comes as the ministry records its largest budget since Slovenia gained independence from Yugoslavia in 1991 and follows the ascent to governmental power over the last two years of a right-wing administration, which has additionally gutted the Slovenian press agency and withheld funding and media outlets covering or expressing views in conflict with those of the ruling party. So I guess the question is, is there a link between right-wing, the growth internationally of right-wing international ideologies and the neoliberal assault on arts, culture, and the press? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, the most important thing to bring up, and I will say this in terms of American art, mm-hmm. uh, we have traditionally, like, emphasized the cultural products we send out are, are related to business and mm-hmm. science mm-hmm. Or, or the cultural products that are related to business and our science is exported to we were never uh, a fine art culture like europe you know had much more of a basis to be so already you know reagan is cutting the you know back in the uh in the 80s he was cutting the funding for the arts through mm-hmm. the national endowment for the arts and that's it's part of the Protestant, you know, uh, aspect of this culture that that conservative Protestant aspect that art is a decorative thing. It's not mm-hmm. something that stirs the spirit in maybe disturbing and interesting ways the way European art did. And I'll point to this quite blatantly. If you look at art and corporations, mm-hmm. it's corporate art. It's usually abstract yeah. and decorative. Yeah. It's not got the figure. The figure is a disturbing kind of element Mm -hmm. that brings up questions about the body. That's an anti-Protestant thing. Mm -hmm. You know, part of my own questions about these things is because I am from a family of Greek Greek background and heritage. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I grew up in a a kind of a simplistic way, understanding uh, the nude and the figure just from some of the art we had around the house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, having a different cultural basis, but you didn't see that in um, American art mm-hmm. has that prudish Protestant basis. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which by by the way, the the the, the nude, the fi- the figure is 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 really fundamental to our total orientation, not just for art, but for for everything, for construction, for balance, uh, for 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 the universe, that understanding of our own innate body and balance, which is reflected and even perhaps cataloged by by the great the great artists and sculptors, that's that's really fundamental to us as as people. Well, you're hitting on something that's absolutely key. And that's the body, uh, uh, the unity of body and spirit. Mm-hmm. That was something that came from the classical Greek ideal. Yep. And that's where you get, you know, the great classical sculptures um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. show that the, the Renaissance sought to reflect. Yeah, and the well. Renaissance yeah. re- was the rebirth of that, yeah. Yeah. the rebirth of the Greek ideal. The thing that was the counterforce was the Christianity 
which split the mind from the body, yeah. which put the spirit up high and the body down low, that the base instincts, that eroticism, that sense of unity and bo of body and spirit was not really possible. Yeah, uh, I yeah. just wrote an article about um, uh, Yanis Saruchis, a Greek artist who shows that tremendous struggle in his own art. Yeah, yeah, a wonderful uh, artist. Yeah, a wonderful artist and uh, somebody who was fighting against the religious dogma Mm -hmm. of his uh of the greek culture at the time you know um the the, the byzantines uh mm -hmm. the greek orthodox church very looking down on the body uh mm -hmm. very patriarchal let's just face it mm -hmm. that was what it was and it is but you know saruchus was homosexual and he put he expressed his eroticism through the naked figure through the body mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. very difficult and courageous thing for him to do at the time he did because Matt, uh, and, and by the way Ed, there was just a wonderful exhibit by him here in chicago but but not in not in you know and an overt way uh, in, in a way that I think was was emblematic of of say uh, David, you know. Yeah, he had to hide it within. He had to couch it within the the acceptable mores of the society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I'm seeing in the work the tremendous longing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the deep mystery of that unity. And that actually, that's the review was of uh, that exhibition you talked about on Wrightwood. Wrightwood 659. In, yeah, 659. Yeah, Dancing in Real Life, Giannis Saruchis. And when I saw that show, I was, you know, I was thinking of the erotic power of the work, but it didn't, the, the wall texts were not bringing out how radical that was. Yeah. And yeah. so he had to couch this in, in classical terms that the society would find more palatable and acceptable. Mm -hmm, but I'm, mm -hmm. what I'm seeing in the work is something else that had to do with his own suppressed uh, the identity that he was forced to suppress within greek culture but eventually did come become more comfortable with when he moved to paris and france right and could therefore even subconsciously find some some greater space of freedom within to express himself mm -hmm. uh, but to get back to your question about neoliberal ideology the problem i think we're facing with is what the artist used to be with the kind of social supports that we used to have in our system mm -hmm. that we did esteem art as something valuable that was humanizing that society should have because that it had a, value it because had it, value but yeah. yeah but it was also a radical critique mm -hmm. of asset value yes which yes. is that yes. art is what it's it's uh, purchase prices that's the value Right. In, right. Uh, you know, uh, before we had these art auctions with these astronomical prices, our artists uh, made the work out of the passion for for the interest in the dynamic of making it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's not the same. Once the prices started going on up and up and up, you had um, this explosion of millions of people suddenly calling themselves artists and wanting to join because it was a, a pro it had profit as well as prestige. And when you get to that point, uh, when the asset value is the subject, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you pretty much destroyed the the if you will the social contract with art. You destroyed the basis of it. Who's you know what? Who's the audience? Well, the audience is wealthy people. It's no longer the public. It doesn't really matter what the public thinks about the next Jeff Koons or Damien Hirst show. Or uh, it, what matters is a small group of extremely wealthy people and their curators and dealers, and and the essentially the price fixing that they can create on those objects at market. 
So the asset value, also the tax evasion, art objects being used as tax evasion. Money um, laundering. The money they, they could use for money laundering. They can mm -hmm. purchase something and put it in a special storage unit where it's a, a tax-free zone where mm -hmm. you don't have mm -hmm. to pay the taxes on it. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a way of uh, hiding assets and transferring assets. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the this abstraction within a, a kind of capitalist economic yeah. system, the abstraction of uh, massive amounts of primitive accumulation of wealth, mm -hmm. I guess mm -hmm. you could say, yeah, yeah. the speculative commodification object. I'll never forget the day when I was um, living in New York City. It was like 1987 or something. And I go to the Met and see the Van Goghs and this and that. And, I, you know, the Van Gogh, there was a nice little Van Gogh of a cart on a street that I always liked with these green hues. I just enjoyed it visually for what it was. Well, then there was the time when the irises sold at a, mm -hmm. for a huge amount of money to some Japanese collector. And then within a a couple of days, they had to put a velvet rope around the picture because of the masses number, number of people who were suddenly gawking at the fact that that Van Gogh was worth more millions than they could possibly have imagined uh, in their in their lifetimes. It, it was it was a bizarre transition. It robs from from the public base or it steals from the public base the the essential ingredient of the artist, and, and I'll, I'll illustrate it this way, when, when I went to Bosnia and, and the former Yugoslavia as, as an artist, I traveled, uh, as an American, I traveled through Serbian territory initially. NATO and, and the Clinton administration had, had threatened and was threatening to bomb Serbia and Bosnian Serb military positions to to help relieve the siege uh, of Sarajevo and and some some of the other um, towns and cities in in Bosnia. There was also there was also a severe economic embargo that decimated the Serbian economy. Simply as an American, I was not I was not liked by you know I I, I had I had I had a target on my back. I had I, I was I was at a deficit uh, for 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 asking for any favors and getting getting around the country at the very least. Going to the U.S. embassy just one time, I was told by uh, a U.S. counselor there that the going rate for for murdering someone in Belgrade at the time was one hundred and twenty five dollars. And then he suggested that I needed to go back to Hungary or wherever. Obviously, I, I, I couldn't do that. I was I was on a I was on a mission to get to Sarajevo, but I also wanted to hear the Serbian side of, of their position on on the war and, and the breakup of Yugoslavia. I had painted on my backpack artist Kunstler Umjetnik, the Serbian and German words for, for artists. When people knew that I was an artist, and I, I, I would do sketches for people, and, but when people knew that I was, was an artist or felt that I was at least being honest with them from an artistic standpoint, I was able to go places and, and speak with people that no other Western journalist was allowed to simply because I was an artist. There was, Fascinating. Fascinating. There, was, there was absolutely no way that I was going to impart to, to anyone in Serbia or, or Bosnia for, for that matter, that there was, there was a difference between 
um, state and journalism because they did not have that experience. So they they couldn't they couldn't understand that that journalists that American journalists weren't acting on behalf of of the United States government or Western uh, Western powers. As an artist, I fell into this exalted position because for for Yugoslavs, artists had always been a dissident. They had always been a that's right. Uh, a critique of of government and politics. So so I held that I held that that very that very exalted position and was able to get around the country. What what we're talking about robs robs the artist of of that that power privilege. Yeah, that privilege, that power. What you're hitting on is very important. I think this is um, going right to the core of the power of art in more of a European context versus mm -hmm. America. Art has its radical uh, element of being subversive to power elites in Europe. Look at the German expressionists and what they were talking about mm -hmm. in the Weimar area and even before that time. Yeah. And why it was such a threat to Hitler. You know, Hitler mm -hmm. persecuted these artists because the threat of what they were saying in the work was so powerful yep. that's a, an incredible statement of why you know uh defunding the arts is a lot about debilitating the power of critique mm -hmm. and that's that's exactly why the art in europe has you know that history when you look at the world wars and what the art what the real art that was saying yeah, yeah. You know, not the Nazi art. I mean, yeah. that's in the back rooms. We're still looking at the art that's uh, talking about uh, what it felt like to be in those societies, in those economies, under and, those states. And not just the power of critique, but but the power of of deep critique, of deep, thoughtful, introspective critique in which we, we talk with artists all the time. And and one of the questions I ask them, and, and I, I bring this up a lot, but it, it bears repeating is artists, music, uh, musicians, writers, what have you, I'm sure Diane, you, you can, uh, you can relate to this easily, that often you, you understand the the construction of art, but sometimes the ideas feel like they come from someplace outside of us, or that you've tapped deeply enough into, into a river of universal truth. Well, it's the psychodynamic element mm -hmm. that when you look at a German expressionist print, you feel what they're feeling. Precisely. It's, it's a direct relationship of the power of the feeling. Mm -hmm. And there's no concept between that mediate between you and yeah. it. You look at the William Kentridge animated films, you feel the power of what it feels like to live in this profoundly alienated, divided society mm -hmm. and what it's like to be in this industrial development phase as profound uh, degradation mm -hmm. of uh, based on the racial relationships, yeah. the apartheid, what it feels like. It's not it's not making a conceptual statement or a statement about it is, and you're entering into that psychodynamic moment of what it feels like to be in it. To be, mm -hmm. And that's what the power is. That's what the great power is. You can see this in 
For example, in Russian uh, film, the great directors like Andrei Tarkovsky, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, brilliant. I, I own all of his uh, films, every single one, because it is uh, a profound immersion into the psychological dimension of the artist's mind expressed through the form of the film. And it's it's so amazing. Mm -hmm. You see this in Larissa Shepetko's work, uh, one of the very few women directors. You see this in Gre uh, Grigor Kozintsev's uh, King Lear, mm -hmm. probably mm -hmm. the greatest Shakespearean version of King Lear. And what you're seeing in those is this profound critique of authoritarianism put through the symbolism of, you know, an Andrei Rublev, you know, a fighter in uh, the Second World War, or, you know, they're put into these contexts of stories, but the, the expressive import is so profound. It's merged with the form itself. Mm -hmm. These people did the profound work of merging the form and the psychological into an un something that cannot be pulled apart or deconstructed. Indeed. or unfused yeah. and you see this also in uh the great animated films that came out of zagreb in yugoslavia mm -hmm. and um you look at some of these films and it's it's about uh, the disruption of being in a country that was put together as a, as as a uh, grouping of different ethnic groups and territories with totally different histories and then put all together mm -hmm. and then the modernization of that under tito's communism you feel the unease and strangeness of it i have a great example of that in in literature of 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 a writer friend of uh, a state leader uh critiquing him without without realizing without the the state leader or the state even realizing that that happens uh but we're going to end up with with a part two here so i want i want to hold uh, hold you there for just a second uh so i can say this diane photos is our guest dianephotos.com stay tuned for part two You're listening to Playtime's Playcast, the arts with a bit of activism, with me, your host, author, artist, and playwright, W.C. Turk. <laughs>